welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Good to be back here once again with you, and uh, as I have mentioned previously, this is, this is my favorite part of the lectures. Uh, this is where we begin to unpack, having laid the foundation of our doctrine biblically, historically, dogmatically now, how we begin to see our world and see the scriptures. Uh, probably should be the, the opposite order, the scriptures and the world, uh, triadically, trinitarianly. And I believe that there is great depth in understanding uh, the world from this perspective. I believe that we begin to see through, through new eyes, as it were, and, um, and I believe it, it deepens our faith in God, it deepens our relationship with Christ, and, and perhaps especially in prayer as we come to know our great God in, in greater depth and, and richness and see him reflected in the world. This is our second um, lecture on the vestiges of the Trinity. So you may recall last week we unfolded several triads and we are going to be, uh, or triadic patterns, and we're going to be building on those today, much like we did with the uh, the two lectures on dogmatics, we built sort of a basic foundation first, and then we came back and, and went over some of the same ground but deepened. We're going to follow a similar um, course today. So what we want to accomplish today is we want to build on what I deemed the immature triad from last week. So you may recall that as we looked at the story, the account of, of creation, if I ever use the word story, please understand that what I mean by that is the narrative that is presented for us. 
Uh, I believe in the full historical account of everything that is in the scriptures, starting with Genesis 1-1. But it is a beautiful story, is it not? Beautiful narrative of, of how God has created all things, entered into uh, into time, into space, and brought all things out uh, about for his glory. So we remarked in Genesis 1-1 last week that you have this immature triad presented by a couple of things. Uh, the first is that, on, that in the first couple of verses of Genesis, you have God the Father represented in just the normativity of, of God creating the heavens and the earth. Uh, but then you've got this this idea that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep, over the deep before you have a reference to the spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. And that this idea is reflected in days, uh, days one, two, and three, in which the second day is, is not specifically explicitly stated to be good by God. It's the only, it's the only one. And I actually have to correct something I stated last week uh, which is that I, I mentioned that this same idea was repeated in the second triad. That is not the case, so there's that correction. But we want to build on that, and we want to build on this immature triad into something that we're going to call the redemptive triad. Uh, and then next, in the next lecture, we're going to build on the gratuitous triad, and we're going to see how that unfolds into several other triads and patterns that I think particularly reflect the Holy Spirit. So before we get to the, the redemptive triad and, and build from the immature triad, as I mentioned, I want to speak just briefly about how these triadic patterns could possibly be ordered themselves. That is to say that I think that there is a triadic pattern to the triadic patterns. So I think that the, now that really shouldn't surprise you because we're gonna see by the end of uh, our next lecture that there's, there's nested triads in scripture because uh, this, this really shouldn't be surprising in the sense that you have a, uh, a triunity of God that begins not only with with God as the fount of all things and is expressed in the distinction of the Son, but also you have this final fulfillment in the Holy Spirit, who is an unfolding, but also an enfolding back into God. And we'll speak some more about that in the next lecture. So as interesting and, and as perhaps funny as it sounds, I do believe there's a triadic pattern to these triadic patterns. And here, and here it is, as far as I can figure it. All right, and it, it may be the case that if I have opportunity to speak, um, to do these lectures again, it, you know, in several years, it may be that I can uh, ha have a, a better systematic understanding of this, but I'll give it to you as far as I have understood it. First of all, in the, in the normative pattern or the processional pattern that we saw last week, this reflects the Father. And it's just the normative pattern of Father, Son, Holy Spirit that we, we see reflected in the baptismal formula. We see uh, as reflected in the, the order of the taxis of the triune God. Uh, but then the, the patterns that we'll be looking at today, which, as I mentioned last week, we started with this immature pattern. 
and then we'll build on that for the redemptive pattern today. I believe that these patterns reflect the sun in that they relate to a distinction that is reflective uh, in creation. Now, that is not to say that we can just make a clear equivocation between the sun and creation. The sun, as he is very God of very God, stands, of course, outside of creation. Creation is not necessary. The sun is necessary in the absolute sense. Nevertheless, because we are the image of God, and the Son is the image of the Father, we see uh, significant patterns reflected in the creator creation, and especially the creator uh, human relationship as it uh, reflects back into the, uh, the father and son relationship. We may say a little bit more about this, but uh, these two patterns that we'll talk about today, I think, reflect the sun in a particular way. In our next lecture, we'll deal with several patterns that I think reflect the Holy Spirit. In that the Holy Spirit, as I have mentioned, uh, there is this idea of the Holy Spirit in that he is the unfolding of the Father and the Son. He is from the Father through the Son. Uh, I don't have a problem with saying from the Father and the Son, but I just think it's a little, a little better to say from the Father through the Son. And so in that sense, he is the third in this uh, taxis of the Trinity, this ordering. But then also, as we have considered, and perhaps especially with the historical work we did, uh, and maybe with the medievals uh, particularly, that we saw that the Holy Spirit also, in a sense, is between the Father and the Son. So there's an enfolding. Okay? There's an unfolding, but then also an enfolding back into God. And so several of the triads that we're going to consider in the next lecture um, bear this sort of form or um, bear the, the markings of the Holy Spirit in, in how they reflect this, this unfolding and unfolding. So as we go through these, these triads, I think there is a bit of a system that we might be able to uh, have for, for our own understanding so we don't just get carried away, but we have some way of of ordering them perhaps even in our own minds. So with that being said, let's look at the immature triad and how it builds to the redemptive triad. So as I've previously mentioned, we saw this immature triad when it came to the lack of the declaration that God said it was good on day two. And, uh, and we see that in the fact that Creation was not created in its fullest form. There was still something there to be developed, to be furthered. Uh, we see something of the reflection of the sun in that. Now, again, with many of the things that we are mentioning and discussing and contemplating here, careful distinctions have to be made so we don't run into error. We would repudiate the idea that the sun is somehow unfinished, all right? The sun is, to go back to that 
Nicene formula, very God of very God. There is, there's no lack in the Son. He is the fullness of God. And yet, within creation, or you would say in relationship to creation, there is something that has a, a bit of an unfinished aspect to the Son and his work and what was planned both as coming from the Father, but as, as agreed upon uh, within the Trinity from before all time. So in relationship to creation, there is a sense in which the Son is not yet fully glorified. There is a sense in which the Father planning Again, this is before creation. This, is, this relates to the ad intra itself, but it relates to the ad extra. So it, re, it, it comes from within God. God planning before all time what he wants to accomplish. But it's, it is relative. It's a relationship to what he does in creation and redemption and, of course, in time. So, in this respect... The Father has planned to put all things into the hands of his Son. And as we we get into Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we see that that's not completely the case. And even now, even though the Son is risen, ascended, reigning, Yet even now, the fullness of the the reward that the Father designed to give to his Son is not yet fully come in or fully realized within, within creation and redemption. So there is a sense, relative to creation and redemption, that the Son is, you could say, his work is unfinished. We don't yet see him high and lifted up. The saints, in a sense, do, but, but, uh, but even then, we will, we will more greatly see, of course, at Christ's return. So, in this immature triad, we see a reflection of the sun. I want to give you a bit of a picture. Oh, sorry, let me say one thing further before I give you a picture. We also saw that in Genesis chapter 1, that you've got this, this lacuna, this lack in verse 2 between God creating the heavens and the earth and the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. But then we also considered, and, and this goes back to Augustine even, and some other early church fathers who said that, you know, in verse 3, when, we, when it says, and God said, that now we have there, uh, the, the speaking, the logos of God. And so you've got the Son there after the Spirit. So I want to give you a, a bit of a, a mind picture that may help you understand what's going on here with this immature and, and redemptive triad. And when I say the redemptive triad, what I mean is that if in the, in the immature triad, you've got the father, and then you, where you should have the son, you've got something that's incomplete. And then you've got the Holy Spirit, so if that's the incomplete triad. In the redemptive triad, now you've got, sorry, now in the redemptive triad, 
You've got the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son. Now, just to make sure you're tracking, let me, let me just do a little bit more work on this. Remember that this is a reflection of what we see in the incarnation, in the baptism of Christ, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Um, you know, the conception of Christ, you see this in the resurrection, which is usually figured as being a work of the Holy Spirit from the Father. Uh, and so, so this is the redemptive triad. Father, Holy Spirit, Son. Now, I want to try to link these two ideas for you through a word picture, or sorry, a mind picture, all right? And with this kind of picture, there's always limits, and that is particularly the case with this picture. You'd want to be very careful with this one, but I, I still think it will be helpful. I want you to imagine the idea of the Father and, and the Son being generated from the Father, and then the Holy Spirit being breathed out from the Father through the Son, and there you have that unfolding but now I want you to imagine, you've got Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I want you to imagine now the Holy Spirit being enfolded back to be between the Father and the Son. And to imagine that pushing the Son down into third position. Now, having said that, you will want to be very careful with this idea. Because the Son is not third in the taxes of the Trinity. Yet, within redemption, we see this pattern regularly. And it stems, I believe, from the fact that you have the enfolding of the Holy Spirit to be between the Father and the Son. So if you will be careful with that picture, I think that can help you understand how this immature triad becomes this redemptive triad that we see in Scripture. The fact that Jesus came down. He became lowly for us. In a, in a certain and important sense, God is humble. And we see that humility reflected in particular in the Son who comes down. And if, again, you will be careful with the picture, you could say he comes down not only from heaven to earth, but in a sense, he has to come down from second place in the Trinity to third. Again, if you will be careful with that idea. But Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, say that, that Christ and what he did for us was an example of this humility that we ought to have as saints. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that lowering God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it is this glorification that I think rescues or allows me to be bold enough to use such a dangerous picture as saying that the Son is pushed down to third by the Holy Spirit. Again, it's, it's only, it's a very limited picture. But the point is, the Son comes down in that he might be brought high. And this is the Father's desire, even within the eternal covenant, that within creation redemption to lift his Son up, but this requires a lowering. It was planned in just such a way. And we're going to see that this builds uh, for something that we will see in our next lecture, with is, which is one of the Holy Spirit-related uh, triads, which we will call the return triad. Now, I want to say a little bit more about how this relates to how we understand the world through a triadic lens. I think it's, it's helpful to think through how the Son, as second within the taxis of God, the order of the Trinity, how he represents us who are made in God's image, but I think we could say specifically made in Christ's image, or particularly made in Christ's image, and so we relate, in a certain sense, as second within the Trinity. So again, I'm going to give you a bit of a picture, and again, you've got to be careful with it. But as we are connected to the triune God, you ought to think of yourself, or at least this is a useful way of thinking, of being connected into the second person within that Trinity. All right? You don't get connected in. There's a sense in which you get connected in to, to the third person, which is the Holy Spirit. We may talk a little bit about that in the next lecture. But I think the, 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 the most important, uh, I'll say the particular way that we ought to see ourselves being connected into the triune God is getting plugged into that second rung, if you will, into Christ. And I want you to... Think about this from the perspective of Genesis chapter 1 and from triperspectivalism, which I've spoken a little bit about. I'm going to speak a little bit more about it now. In Genesis chapter 1, we see three spheres that are created. The heavens, the seas, and the earth. Now, the interesting thing about the, the Genesis account of those spheres is I just related them in the order in which they are um, stated in the creation account. Uh, they are created in that order, and they are filled in that order. Nevertheless, when it comes to the ordering of the spheres, you could, I'm going to use this word, geographically, we actually see that the heavens, the heavens, they get the number one spot no matter which way you look at it, but then you have the earth. And then after that, you have the seas, or uh, at times it is stated in scripture, the, uh, the waters under the earth. All right, so for instance, if you look at Philippians chapter 2 and the triad of who all is going to bow to Christ, 
It's every tongue on, in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. That language is actually the same as the seas. If you trace back that triad to the Old Testament, all right? The seas or the seas under the earth or the waters under the earth, that's the same, it's the same idea. Um, so it's interesting that you've got two different triads here, heaven, seas, earth, but also heaven, earth, seas. And I think in that, it's interesting because you've got a little bit of this reflection of the incomplete redemptive pattern where you have, in one sense, a pattern that reflects uh, Father, Holy Spirit, Son, but also Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So, uh, we're going to come back to, to heavens, earth, seas. But first of all, let's make just a little bit of an excursus out to the side before coming back to that. All right? One of the thing, questions that I ask about the fact that, for instance, in Genesis chapter 1, you've got two different ordering, orderings, but you've got the heavens as being you know, in, in prime spot in both cases. It alerts me to something within the triadic patterns that, that we see in Scripture, which is that the Holy Spirit and the Son are often seen as almost interchangeable. Okay, let me state that, that again. The Holy Spirit and the Son are seen in many ways as particularly interchangeable. So let me give you a couple of examples. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. There we read, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 3.17. This is even more clear. 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Let's take a look at one further passage. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. You don't have to go back far. 1 Corinthians 15, and I will, yeah, I guess really it's just verse, yeah, verse 45. We could take a larger chunk here, but verse 45 states, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, I don't think there's any doubt scripturally. There, you could add examples that would maybe be less clear. But there's no question in my mind that within scripture, you've got a certain interchangeability between the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the question that I want to ask is, okay, is this something that's only particular to the Holy Spirit and the Son? Or is there an interchangeability to the other persons of the Trinity? And I think that when we ask that question, that we would have to answer yes. That there's, a, there's quite an interchangeability between the Father and the Son, but it looks a little different. For instance, 
The son can say, whoever has seen me has seen the father. And the son is said to be the image of the invisible God. So what I want to suggest to you is that there is a certain interchangeability between the persons relative to one another that reflects a certain aspect. They don't, they're not interchangeable in the same, with the same emphasis. So the Son and the Holy Spirit, I believe, are, and please understand that I'm using the word interchangeable in a very loose sense. I don't mean that there's no distinction between the two. We've spent an incredible amount of time pointing out distinctions, right? But I think that the emphasis in the interchangeability, if I use that word, between the Son and the Holy Spirit is uh, this idea of the, of the missions or, or redemption. And this fits with the fact that with the Holy Spirit and the Son, you have two missions of God. Right? The Father is the only one who is not sent. The Son is sent. The Holy Spirit is sent. The Son sent by the Father. The Holy Spirit sent by the, by the Father through the Son. The Father is unsent. So you've got a, an emphasis on redemption in this interchangeability of the, of the Son and the Holy Spirit that I think goes back to this tri, these triads we've been looking at, this immature triad and this redemptive triad. Within, with, what about this uh, relationship between the Father and the Son? I would characterize that interchangeability as one of representation. That when, again, you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. This is why I believe the, or one of the reasons, I, we could unpack this a lot, but I think this is one of the reasons in which God, or you could say God the Father, invites us to worship the Son kind of preeminently. He's the representation of God. He's what we see of God. Um, now, of course, some of you are noting that there's one relation I haven't mentioned yet which is the Father and the Holy Spirit. Is there, inter is there an interchangeability there? And I think the answer is yes. I think it's a little more subtle. I'm not sure. I'm not going to spend some time. I'm not going to spend time pointing to, to some passages here. Uh, I think you could get there with a few passages like maybe Romans 11:36. But I think that the emphasis in the interchangeability between the Father and the Holy Spirit is that of completion or unity. So, the Father represents a unity in, his, in the fact that he's the fount of, of, of all. The Holy Spirit represents a, a unity, but in a different sense, in that he sums everything together. But there's a certain interchangeability there as well. Okay, so that was our little excursus. Now we're going to bring this back to, Father, sorry, to heavens, seas, earth, or heavens, earth, Sees. And I am suggesting to you that the fact that the sun uh, comes down helps us to understand the fact that even though the, the earth was created last, that it, it has this middle perspective between the heavens and the seas. And this becomes really important because that middle aspect is the aspect that we have or the perspective that we have. 
Now, you go with me here for a second. This will become quite clear, I believe, in a, in a minute. We look at the heavens from the vantage point of the earth. We're not there. We're not, we're not up in the heavens. We're created for the earth. And in fact, this creational truth is a very important um, part of actually understanding the final state. That God did not create us to be floating around in heaven. That's not the final state. The final state is glorified, renewed earth with, with men ruling under God. Glory of the Holy Spirit filling, filling all things. And, 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 and you know, in Christ's rule all to God the Father's glory and, and as seeing the completion of his plan. So we look at, at heaven from the perspective of earth, but we also look outwardly into this world from the perspective of the earth. And there are several triads that, that kind of um, coalesce around this basic idea of heaven, earth, and seas. Now, uh, Lightheart is, is excellent on this point. He talks about a three-story house. And I think that that's a useful way to, to think of our, our world. When it comes to this perspective, I think it links up really well with John Frame's triperspectivalism. And I've mentioned this in, the, in past lectures, uh, sort of a shortcut for it in regard to if you want to see a triad in this world, think about upward, inward, outward. Upward to the heavens, inward, because we're created for the earth, and outward into the world, which is represented by the seas. All right, so upward, inward, outward, or God, self, world. And this, is, this perspective is why, for instance, you've got... Um, in the scriptures, you've got places like uh, the seas being representative of the Gentiles. Now, there's certain geographical aspects to that in that, um, at least if you go to the west, you have the coastlands were considered the Gentile, the Gentile world. That was around the Mediterranean Sea. So there's some, there's some connections here, even geographically. But... Um, John Frame's triperspectivalism is this. Normative is how we relate, or this is me saying this now. It's, I would say that's how we relate upward, all right? But he also talks about existential, which is the, this inward aspect, and then the situational is us in the world. So, for instance, I built this out when it came to teaching uh, the grade four to seven systematic theology class by asking a question about epistemology. Now, I, I didn't use the word epistemology. Well, I think I did mention it, I, but I, I'll use the word knowledge, how we know things with the young ones. But I mentioned that there's three ways in which we know things. God's word is normative. It's upward. And, and, this, and it has the prime position. If you, you know, if you can't figure out any other way to know something, if you know God's word, you're good, because that's where everything starts. But also, God has given us a conscience. There's an inward sense in which we know certain things. 
I think you could even use the word intuition. And then there is also an outward sense in which we know things. God has given us senses to be able to perceive our world empirically. So, I think a lot of this goes back to heaven, earth, seas, uh, this, which of course goes back to uh, this, this Trinitarian perspective. Now, what is interesting is that this, pers- this perspective of the heavens, seas, sorry, heavens, earth, and seas also is, is nested. All right? And we see, for instance, that there are, in the scriptures that there are three heavens. First of all, there is the place where the birds fly. That's the lowest heaven. But then, too, we've got the, the you could say, the cosmos or the, the, the uh, you know, the place where the sun and the moon and the stars are. But then above that, you've got the place where God himself dwells. The highest heaven, the, the third heaven, as Paul says. There was a man caught up to the third heaven. So you've got, you've got a triadic, ordered spheres of the heavens. Well, what about the earth? Well, there too, you've got three spheres. Again, Lightheart is good, about, uh, good on this, but there are many others who have noted this throughout, throughout history. That here in Genesis, you've got the idea of, first of all, the garden itself, which was on the high place of a mountain. It was the closest place to heaven on the earth. It was the place you met with God. It was the place where God walked with man. Then you've got a larger area of, of Eden. It's a geographical area, but it was more than the garden. And then you've got outside of the garden of Eden, and man's Job was, was to take, and it's beautifully symbolic, he was to make the entire earth a temple garden. And so you, you begin to see this rich dominion perspective that is very triadic and how it informs what our vocation ought to be in this world. It's to, it's to make under, under Christ, by his Holy Spirit, for the glory of God, to make this entire earth a temple garden. So, when it comes to Christ and how he redeems us, we see that Christ actually triumphed in all three stories of creation. In all three spheres, he triumphed. He came down from heaven to this earth, but then in his death, he went under the earth. And in fact, I believe, and there's, there's debate about this, but I believe that on, the, uh, that on the Sabbath, that he actually went and he proclaimed his victory over all the evil powers in Hades. And I believe that that was that triumph in the lowest place. And then when he came up to the earth and he rose again, that was his triumph in that middle place, that place that really matters for, for us, because we have this, this middle position, if you will. And then he ascended to heaven and he 
led a host of captives in his train. There's some victory there. But then as he enters into heaven on behalf of man, taking us symbolically with him, well, not just symbolically, mystically with him to the, to the highest places, then he is given that scroll that no man can open, but the lamb is able to, to open the scroll and everything is unfolded and put within his hands as the reigning king. So Christ triumphs in all three stories, but he has to come low. He has to come low. Let me finish by, if you have your Bibles, let me finish by looking at a couple of things here in Genesis chapters. Uh, let's go to chapter 3. There, there are a number of triads that we could bring out of, I think, even chapter 2. Uh, well, I have mentioned uh, a couple of them. But we see that even the curse and the proto-gospel uh, in Genesis chapter 3 also has a Trinitarian form. I believe there's actually a Trinitarian form to the, uh, to the temptation, in fact, as well. But, but let's go down to the curse in verse 14. We see that the serpent... He is, he is the lowest on this totem pole that, that man is supposed to have dominion over, if he is normative, he is supposed to have dominion over sort of himself and his family, but also over the world and the beasts. And this order was appended by the fact that it's the beast that comes, and, and who does the beast come to? Well, to the woman. So it's, you're working kind of this backwards triad, this perverse triad, before, and then you finally get the fall of man, and it's in this order that the curse comes. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles there shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so you've got a, you've got a reversal of what God had planned. Man lost his dominion. He didn't protect his wife. His wife was, was, was tempted and, and uh, deceived by the beast. And it's starting with the beast, of course, that, that, that stands for Satan, that that is where now this lowest point that the redemption needs to come in. It needs to start at the bottom, and then it works its way back up. Well, I think we'll finish with that, and I look forward to our next lecture. We'll, we'll build on these things uh, a little further. I want to finish with a statement. Let's see if I have this statement. 
from Bonaventure. Bonaventure, as we were looking at the, uh, our historical work on the Trinity, I mentioned that he, more than any other ancient writer that I've ever read, he just, he thinks triadically. And uh, before we kind of go out of Genesis, I want to I share this. He says this. They may be referred to him in three different ways. That is man. Oh, sorry. No, it's it's speaking about God here. As he is the principle who creates, the end who motivates, or the gift who dwells within. All his creatures are referred to him in the first way, all rational beings in the second, and in the third, all righteous souls accepted by him. All creatures, however little they may partake of being, have God for their principle. All rational beings, however little they may partake of light, are intended to grasp God through knowledge and love. And all righteous and holy souls possess the Holy Spirit as an infused gift. Now a creature cannot have God for its principle unless it is conformed to him in oneness, truth, and goodness. You should recognize that as a Trinitarian triad, right? Nor can it have God for its end until it grasps him through memory, intelligence, and will. Finally, it cannot have God as an infused gift unless it conforms to him through the threefold dowry of faith, hope, and love. The first conformity is distant, the second close, and the third most intimate. That is why the first is called a trace of the Trinity, the second an image, and the third a likeness. Let's pray.